Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Our topic for the morning is a precious promise for the new year. And our text is found in the 11th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 11 and the 12th verse. But the land, whether you go to possess it, is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year, even unto the end of the year. Deuteronomy means second to law, and the book records the reiteration of Moses' law that was given at Mount Sinai 40 years later to a new congregation, essentially, as they prepared to cross Jordan's River and go into the promised land. Most of the original crew have died in the wilderness. Those who were 20 years of age and upward have perished because of their unbelief. Only Joshua and Caleb of the original exiles are still living. But their children and those who were born on the journey are now prepared to enter into the land of Canaan. And Moses again reiterates the law that was given to their parents back at Sinai. That's the book of Deuteronomy. And the word remember is one of the key words of this book. Over and over again, he says, remember how the Lord has led you. Remember the land that you came out of. Remember how the Lord bare you on eagle's wings and brought you to himself. He wants them to never forget the providence of God. And in this 11th chapter, Moses particularly contrasts Canaan's land with the land of Egypt from whence they had come out. He says in the seventh verse, Your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord, which he did. Therefore you shall keep all the commandments which I command you this day, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt." From whence you came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. You know, Egypt was a flat land and it was an arid land. And they had to use their feet to make troughs and channels for the water to flow to irrigate the crops. It was not a fertile land, but he says, The land, whether you go in to possess it, is a land of hills and valleys. This isn't a flat land. Canaan's land, in contrast to Egypt's land, which was an irrigated land, Canaan's land is a land that God waters from heaven. He says, it drinketh water of the rain of heaven. And sometimes you may know that hymn writers use Canaan's land as a type of eternal heaven. We sing, I'm on my way to Canaan, and certainly... We are on pilgrimage to that heavenly city. We're looking forward to a land where we will have eternal rest. And I understand the poetic use of Canaan's land to speak of heaven. But the fact is, it's a much more accurate thing to speak of Canaan's land as a picture of the New Testament church. 
and of the lives of God's people in this world. For you know, they had enemies in Canaan's land. You and I will have no enemies in heaven. They had to conquer giants, and they had to fight the pagan nations around them. And we won't have any more trauma or difficulty or conflict over there. There were obstacles to entering into that land, but there will be no obstacles for us in heaven. I think it's more accurate to think of Egypt as a picture of this world, where progress and success depends on human ingenuity and efforts by men. And Canaan's land is a picture of the Lord's church and the life of the believer, where prosperity depends on the provision and blessing of the Lord like rain coming down from heaven. I want you to notice three significant features of this land here in the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy. First, he says it's a land that flows with milk and honey, verse number 9. And that merely means it's a land of plenty, as the writer says elsewhere in the Old Testament. That is, the harvest is abundant. The blessings available are prolific. I want to tell you, my friends, in the Lord's church, as opposed to this world, the blessings that are available to God's people are manifold and abundant. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it more abundantly. And I wonder if any of you have ever tasted the abundant life, that extra blessing, that extra grace, that extra plenty and mercy that is available to God's people when they walk with the Lord. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Not just a little drop here and a drop there. There's no arid place in the land of Canaan. I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, that the blessings that are available to God's people today are manifold. Psalm 84:11 says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Don't you love to think about God as a giving God? He will give. He's not a stingy God who says, no, I'm going to keep it all to myself, but he's open-handed. He's liberal. He is very benevolent. He gives grace and glory, and he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. For some reason, I used to think that I had to talk God into blessing me in prayer, that he was reluctant to bless and uh, just very seldomly would say yes. But you know, our God's a loving father, and a loving parent enjoys saying yes as much as possible to a child, right? A loving parent wants to see a child pleased. Now, of course, he sometimes says no because he knows what we need more than we know what we need. But he is a very generous and open-handed God in heaven. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. I like that word plenteous, don't you? He doesn't just have a smattering of mercy here or there, but he's plenteous in mercy. There's sufficiency and all sufficiency in our God. So this is a land that flows with milk and honey, unlike the desert sands of Egypt. Now, of course, the Nile ran through there. And there was fertile ground on each side of the Nile, but you get too far away from the water source, and you know it's hot desert sand. And if you wanted to grow a garden or crops elsewhere in Egypt, you had to figure out a way to form tributaries and channels 
and to irrigate the land from the water sources, you had to water it with your feet. But interestingly, this word careth for, in verse 12, it's a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The Hebrew word careth for literally means treads. He treadeth. This is a land that God treads. In other words, you had to tread, you had to use your feet to make channels, to make irrigation ditches. You had to trample the path out yourself for the water to flow from the Nile to your crops. But God treads the land of Canaan. In other words, it's his work. This is a land of grace. Can I say it like that? That's what grace is. Man's works are not involved. It is the work of God to bless his people. God is a God who cares for his land. Notice, secondly, it's a land of hills and valleys in verse 11. The land where you go to possess is a land of hills and valleys. And I think that we can draw from that our lives here not only are abundant with God's mercies and blessings, there's plenty to be had and enjoyed by God's people as they walk in fellowship with the Lord But I think we can say that the circumstances of our lives are changing and variable, like hills and valleys. Sometimes we're on the mountaintop and sometimes we're in the valley. You know, we sing about that in the hymn in our hymnal, mixtures of joys and sorrows I daily do pass through. Is that true for your life in this past year? Sometimes, he says, I'm in the valley and sinking down with woe. But sometimes I'm on the mountaintop. I'm lifted above my troubles. I hope to reach the sky and I rise on eagle's wings. Indeed, Ecclesiastes 7.14 puts it very aptly when he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. For God has set the one over against the other to the end that man may find nothing after him. Here's the purpose of change in our lives so that we might Learn to trust and depend on the Lord. And though you're in the valley today, understand that to have a valley, you've got to have a mountain, right? You can't have a valley without having an elevated place somewhere. But remember when you're on the mountaintop, if you've gone up to the top, you probably have to come down again. There's another valley. And that's so typical of our lives, isn't it? Our lives, my beloved, are changing, transitory. Nothing stays the same forever. And I've got bad news for you this morning. You will have some valleys this next year. But I've got good news for you this morning. You'll have some mountaintop experiences as well. And the Lord is the same whether you're on the top of the mountain or in the depths of the valley. So this is a land of multitude of blessings, but it's also a land of changing circumstances and variations. And then he says in verse 12, it's a land which the Lord thy God cares for. I like that. God's providential care is a constant in the midst of the unknown variables of the future. God cares for this land, and this is our text this morning. For the eyes of the Lord God are always upon this land from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. I love to think about God's providential care. He's the caretaker of this land, in other words. And he cares for each one of his little ones. He cares for his church. Now, does the Lord care about what's happening on the global stage? No doubt. 
He is aware of it. No doubt he's in sovereign control of it. No doubt he's able to overrule it and to restrain the extent of evil in this world and to work in the midst of it for the glory of his name and the good of his people. We trust a sovereign God today. I'm glad to know that God is aware of what's happening. But you know, in a special sense, he cares for Zion. He cares for his church. He cares for his people. And he watches over them. I love 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where Peter says, Cast all your care upon him, for he careth for you. I wonder if you've learned to personalize Bible promises like that. And when the Bible says for you, to say for me. I'm going to cast all my cares upon him, for he cares for me. Now, how many people really care about you in this world? I know mom and dad, your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your siblings, they care for you, and that's the way it should be. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's a pretty small number, isn't it? The masses of humanity won't miss a lick when I'm gone. (laughs) There'll be a little two-paragraph obituary probably in section C, page 3, and people who might have known me would say, well, goodness, he's... He's passed. I'm sorry to hear that, but you know, life will go right on. And in the final analysis, I dare say that most of us are just average, common, ordinary people, aren't we? But isn't it wonderful to think that the creator of the universe, the almighty God, the only true and living God of heaven and earth, knows about you and cares about you personally? That is, he cares for you, and you are invited to cast your cares upon him. That is, to roll your burdens over onto the Lord. Learn how to cast, my friends. Take your problems and learn how to send them heavenward. Cast them on Him. You say, well, I don't want to impose. I don't want to burden Him. It's no burden. His shoulders are perfectly capable of carrying your problems. As you and I embark on a new year and the unknown tomorrow, how wonderful to know that our Heavenly Father cares. You know, Matthew chapter 6 says he cares for sparrows. That's surprising. I've driven down the highway before and inadvertently hit a little bird that flew off from the shoulder of the road, you know, with my car and seen it in the rearview mirror and thought, oh, I sure hate to do that. But you know, it's not just a mile or two down the road before I've forgotten all about it. But the Lord sees every sparrow that falls, the minutest of details, does not escape his notice. He's aware of every hair on your head. He numbers our steps. He knows every part and parcel of the details, the minutia of your life and mine. My beloved, a God who cares for sparrows, are you not much more valuable than many sparrows? Indeed you are. For he is their creator, but he's your heavenly father. He has a covenant relationship with you and me, by his marvelous grace. Now, sometimes, if you're like me, we echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 142, verse 4, when he says, I looked for some to take pity, but I found none. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. David felt like that on that particular occasion and probably on other occasions in his life. Do you remember the period in his life when he lived for about 10 years as a fugitive? On the run from King Saul, everywhere he turned, it seemed that someone was sending word back to Saul they had seen him, and 
Saul chased David like a hunter chases a partridge or a quail through the mountains seeking to kill David. I can imagine that it was torment to have to constantly look over his shoulder to feel like his life hung in jeopardy every hour. In fact, David on one occasion says there's but a step between me and death. If you've ever felt like an enemy was pursuing you, whether physically or reputationally or in whatever way, you know that that is a tormenting kind of circumstance. On those occasions, David felt that he was very much alone. No man cared for my soul. Nobody cares. Nobody really can help me. He felt like he was all alone. You know, the disciples sort of felt like that in Mark 4.38 when they were trying to keep the ship afloat during this mighty storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was asleep in the hinder part of the ship. And finally, they went to awaken him and they asked him this question, Master, carest thou not that we perish? That is, Lord, I can't believe that you can sleep while we're out here trying to keep the ship afloat. You know, we're about to drown. We're about to capsize. This is a serious matter, and how can you sleep? Lord, don't you care? I want to ask you, my friends, have you ever been tempted to ask, Lord, don't you care about me? I'm glad to tell you that the eyes of the Lord are always upon us. This is a land that the Lord cares for. The lives of his people are under divine observation, under the gaze of God. And he looks upon us with providential mercy, with tender care, because he does indeed care. The hymn writer asked the question, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? He says, when my steps grow weary, my, my long way is dreary. He says, is it aught to him, does he care? And I love the chorus of that hymn. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. The Lord who has given himself for me has proven his care for me. You know, the fourth verse of that song says, Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And some of you have had that experience where you've lost a life companion. You've lost perhaps even a child. You've lost someone that was precious to you. And the answer is, dear friends, his heart is touched with your grief. He's touched with the feeling of your infirmities. Yes, indeed, he cares. Another hymn writer asked the question, why should I feel discouraged? Why should my heart grow weary and sad and lonely? And the answer that the hymn writer comes to in the chorus of that hymn is that his eye is on the sparrow, and I know that he cares for me. If he watches over little birds... And he didn't give himself to die for little birds. He gave himself to die for the likes of you and me. Then certainly he's a God who cares. So this land that you're coming into is not like Egypt's land where you had to work real hard and toil. This is a land that God cares for. He's the caretaker. Yes, there will be hills and valleys. But oh, it flows with milk and honey. And God providentially watches over this land. Now, we could say he providentially watches over this church. He providentially watches over your life. He providentially watches over your days, over your family. But I want you to notice that this is a particular promise. Let's apply the text by noticing some of the key words in our text. 
The first key word is the personal pronoun, thy. He said, for the eyes of the Lord, thy God, are always upon it. May I suggest that it's important not to just read over that word, thy. The Lord, thy God, your God. For that is covenant language. That God's not our God because we chose him. He's our God because he chose us. God is the creator of the universe. But you know, there's a definite special people who can say he's our God. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, This God is our God. He will be our guide even unto death. And anytime you read in the Bible, somebody saying, I am his and he is mine, it's because the Lord said, I will be their God and they shall be my people. He said that in covenant. You see, before the world ever began, God marked out a people as his own. And he covenanted, he vouchsafed himself, he committed himself in covenant commitment to be their God and to make them his people. And had he not done that, my beloved, then we would have never had a relationship with God. You see, man is so fallen, so sinful that he'll never move toward God on his own. So when the Bible uses language, personal language like this, the Lord thy God, your God, you can say he's my God because he claimed me as his child. You see, he said, I will be their God. I will, and they shall be my people. You know, the illustration I've used when I speak of that verse is marriage. When Lori and I were married, the preacher said, will you take her? And I said, I will be her husband. And then he asked her, will you be his wife? And she said, I will be his wife. Now, what if Lori hadn't shown up on our wedding day? And it was just me there. And said, so, well, she's not here. We can't have the, yeah, you can do it. I'll answer for her. <laughs> okay, Brother Goins, will you be her husband? I will. And will she, she shall. <laughs> You say, it doesn't work like that. Well, that's how it worked in the covenant of redemption before time began. You see, you weren't there, and I wasn't there. And if we would have been there, we would have probably rebelled and revolted against God in our depraved state. But God, in his grace, said, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, he claimed us as his own, and he guaranteed that we would respond. And when a dead sinner is quickened, when he's called by divine grace into new life in Christ, may I say he's made willing in the day of God's power. He responds. Jesus said in John 5, 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. You say, well, what if they don't want to hear? He said, they shall hear. What if they're hard of hearing? He said, they'll hear it. And you say, well, what if they don't want to respond? He said, they shall respond. They shall live. Lazarus-like, when Jesus speaks the life-giving voice, the dead come forth and the dead live. I'm telling you, dear friends, that this is a work of grace. It's a work of sovereign mercy. So the first key word here is this word, thy. The Lord, thy God. And it speaks of a covenant relationship. And therefore, the scope of the promise that he's talking about in this verse is not general and universal, but it's special and particular. You say God cares for this land, that means that this is universal. God will care for everybody. I'm telling you, dear friends, God cares for his people. God cares for his church. 
God, in a special sense, has pledged himself to take care of you and to take care of me, not because we're better than anybody in and of ourselves, but because in his grace, he's marked us out as his own. He's our God, and therefore, we can take comfort today to know that we have a precious promise that everybody doesn't have. I think it's so important to understand that the world is basically divided into two different groups of people. There are people who love God because they've been taught to love him in their hearts, and they want to please him and serve him, but there are people out in this world who care nothing about him. There are people out here, my friends, who actually hate God. And I'm telling you, the promise that he will care for you, care for his people, is a very special and definite promise. It's not universal. Now you say, well, isn't God providentially taking care of planet Earth and the entire human population? Indeed he is. He's feeding the fish. He's making sure that the animals in the forest have their meat. He's giving the early and the latter rain. He's causing it to rain on the just and the unjust. This entire natural planet is a testimony to God's common grace. He's good to all. That's true. But in a special sense, my friends, he takes care of his own. Okay, so that's the first word, this word thy. And notice he says, the Lord thy God. If you look in your King James Bible, you'll see that the word Lord is in all capitals. And we know that that's a clue that the translators have translated the Hebrew name of God, Jehovah. So God is caring for this land. He's going to bring the children of Israel, his covenant people, into this land. Moses is telling them as they stand on the border of Canaan's land that you're about to go into a new land and it's different from what you've come out of. It's a special place. You're going in because you're God's people. And he has claimed you as his own. He's Jehovah. And that name, you may remember, comes from the words in Exodus 3, I am that I am. Jehovah is the covenant name for God, his relational name. And it speaks of the special relationship that he has to his people. And everything that he is, is theirs. God is eternal. God is sovereign. God is unchangeable. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. God is all-powerful. There's nothing too hard for him. God is holy and just and merciful and gracious and good and kind. All of that guarantees that the beginning of the year to the end of the year will be under his divine care for his people. Notice the second key word in this text, and it's the word eyes. The second key word that jumps out at me is the word eyes. The land which the Lord thy God cares for, he says, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it. Now this idea that God has eyes is uh, one of those passages in the Bible in which God is described in language with which we can identify. And it doesn't mean that he consists of body parts. We know that God is a spirit. But it speaks of the hand of the Lord in the Bible. That's speaking of his power. You know, the finger work of God, the heavens are the work of his fingers. That speaks of the extension of his power, his arm, his hand, his providence. It speaks of the ear of the Lord. His ear is not heavy. He's not hard of hearing that he cannot hear, nor his arm shortened. He doesn't have a withered arm, a handicapped arm that he cannot save. God is described in this way in the Bible. 
But when he speaks of the eyes of the Lord, obviously he's speaking of what theologians call the omniscience of God. Now you say, Brother Mike, I thought you said that the promise here is specific and definite in particular to God's people. And his omniscience, he knows everything. That's true. But first of all, when we think of the eyes of the Lord, let's think of the omniscience of God. This is the broad general term that means that there's nothing that escapes his gaze. That's true, isn't it? We know that, right? Nothing escapes the gaze of God. Psalm 11:4 says it like this. The Lord is in his holy temple. His throne is in heaven. His eyes behold and his eyelids try the children of men. From that heavenly vantage point, God sees everything, right? We know that. Another verse is Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looketh down from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. Psalm 66, verse 7. He ruleth by his power forever. His eyes behold the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So God sees everything. So we know that's true. Job 34, 21 says, His eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. And we could just stack scripture on top of scripture and keep going. Proverbs chapter and I won't give you too many more of these. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And then Proverbs 5, verses 20 and 21. He asked, why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? Now, here's a dad giving his son advice to stay away from illicit relationships. Watch the kind of people that you identify with. Don't indulge in fornication, adultery, all kinds of immorality and profligate activity. He says, why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondereth all his going. So we know that God sees and knows everything. But in a special relational caring sense, he looks upon his people. That's the thought in our text. Let me give you just a few verses to prove that. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 6. And I love this passage. For I will set mine eyes upon them, God says, for good. Notice that little qualifier, for good. I will set my eyes upon them for good. That is, God sees, he's aware of everything, but in a special sense, he will look with favor. I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. The children of Israel, of course, were in Babylon. They were in captivity for 70 years. But God pledges to restore them in this text. And he says, I will do this for their good. I will do this in my mercy, and I will give them a heart to know me. I like that. That I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. You see, that's a sense in which God looks upon his loved ones with an aim to bless Another passage is Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Notice how particular that is. And his ears are open unto their cry. In a special sense, God looks upon his people. He looks upon all men, but in a special sense, he looks with favor upon his people. One more verse, Isaiah 66, 2. But to this man will I look. 
saith the Lord, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembles at my word. You want to know what gets God's attention? See, probably the pomp and pageantry of mighty world empires. No, here's what gets God's attention. Humility and meekness of spirit. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. Do you feel your weakness? God notices you. God sees you. And God looks with favor upon you. So when we say that our God oversees and watches over his people, this means that the Lord takes a personal interest in us and in his land. He doesn't delegate it to somebody else. He says, the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. He doesn't farm this out to somebody else. Isaiah chapter 41 verse 17 says, When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I the Lord will hear them. And I will open rivers in dry places and fountains in the deep. And I will cause the dry land to spring forth with springs of water. God says, I will take a personal interest in my people. He doesn't delegate the care of his people to Michael the archangel or Gabriel. God does it himself. He personally takes care of his people. It also means that he is the guardian. Like a shepherd guards his sheep. Do you remember at the birth of Jesus, it says there were shepherds abiding in the fields. That is, they were living outside during this special season, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now that's what a shepherd should do. A shepherd needs to be vigilant and alert. What would you think of a shepherd who decided to... Uh, take a siesta. <laughs> you say, no, you better keep your eyes peeled. You stay up all night. You're on guard duty. And that's when the predators like to attack, you know, under the cover of darkness. He says, so you need to keep watch by night. I'm telling you, dear friends, the great shepherd of the sheep watches over his people. That's what 1 Peter 2.24 means when it says he's the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. The Greek word bishop is episkopos. It means an overseer, a bishop is somebody who watches over. Is there a difference in overlooking someone and looking over someone? Somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, I overlooked you. I didn't notice you. God never overlooks us. Instead, he oversees us. He watches over us. He is constantly on duty. So this is a land which the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon. From the beginning of the year, even to the end of the year, he's, he guards us. He takes a personal interest in us, and he even takes pleasure in his people. Theologians like to distinguish between God's benevolent love and his complacent love. And what they mean by that is his love of benevolence is his general goodwill, his kindness to humanity. Even the unjust, even the wicked breathe his air, and even they can enjoy the taste of a red delicious apple or a South Carolina peach, you know. Even they can appreciate the refreshment of a cold drink of water on a hot summer's day. Even the wicked enjoy the benefits of natural creation. That's God's benevolence. He's benevolent. But I'm telling you, the love of complacency is the kind of love that a husband and wife have for each other, that kind of pleasure and delight that we take in one another. And I want to say that God looks on his people with a special pleasure and delight. 
Psalm 149 verse 4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. He takes pleasure. He enjoys being with us. So here's a land that the Lord cares for, not as a job, not in a sort of clinical, detached way. He says, well, okay, this is my job. Let's see, we need to fertilize this part of the property and we need to maybe rechannel the water over here. God doesn't caretake this land, my friends, in a clinical, detached, remote kind of way, but he takes a personal interest in his church and in the lives of his children. And dear friends, he does it with delight. He does it with pleasure. And then I want you to notice finally the word always. This is a land which the Lord thy God careth for, for the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon this land. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year, they are always upon it. God's providential care on behalf of his children is unwearied and perpetual. The eyes of the Lord are always upon it. I want to say, dear friends, that there is no variation, no change in the way that God looks upon you and me. And sometimes when you try to focus on an object for too long, you just have to blink or look away and kind of reconfigure your thinking before you look back at it. You know, it's hard to sustain gaze at one object for a long period of time. What happens to you when you sit down to read? <laughs> if you're like me, you know, I have to really make a mental effort. I'm so used to seeing little video clips on the computer or on my smartphone or watching television, seeing images that reading is a, you know, it's, it's increasingly difficult. It's easy to get out of the habit. You know, you have to put forth some mental energy and effort to read, don't you? And God's people are people of the book. Let's remember that, okay? God gave us a book. He didn't give us a video game. He didn't give us a movie to watch. He gave us a book, and he expects us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, and to read his word. For the words of the Lord are upright. And that's one reason that I'm trying to encourage all of us again this year to read through the Bible. And if you're like me, I looked at the schedule I handed out and tried to see it. And I thought, I need to go buy a magnifying glass at Dollar General so I can see this a little bigger because the print, the font is too small. So if you need a copy that has bigger font, I'll reprint. I'll enlarge the font and reprint it on several pages for you. And what I'm doing, I read today's reading yesterday to get a head start and make sure I didn't forget, and I just mark it off, you know, as I read it. And uh, Lord willing, I'm going to try to read through the Bible this year, and I uh, hope that you will as well, because, uh, you know, it'll improve many areas of your spiritual life and mine as well. But, um, you know, whenever I sit down to read, sustaining the effort is difficult, and I find myself, my mind wandering, my eyes getting tired. And sometimes I get distracted. I want to tell you, God's eyes are always on your lives and on his church. He never gets distracted. His attention is never diverted to something else. He never slumbers. His eyes never get heavy with weariness. He never is weary with sleep. Psalm 121 verse 4 says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in. 
from this time forth and even forevermore. He that keeps Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. Isaiah 40, 28 says, even though the youths shall faint and become weary, yet the Lord fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Isn't it wonderful to know that God is perpetually focused, intently focused on his land, and that he never goes to sleep on guard duty, and that he never is distracted and says, oh, I'm sorry, and he never has to see you out of his peripheral vision. You are always the apple of his eye. The eyes of the Lord are always upon it, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. God is always watching our lives. He is truly, as Hagar said, the God who sees me. Thou, God, seest me. He is El Roy. That's one of his names. The God who sees. Even though I can't see him at all times, yet he's always watching me. He's truly the God who's promised in Psalm 32, 8, I will guide thee with mine eye upon thee. I will guide thee with mine eye. That's why the hymn writer would say, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. You see, really, we're blind, aren't we? And we can't make our way through this world, so Lord, would you guide me? Would you guide me with your eye upon me? For the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon us. We're going to walk by faith and trust a good guide. To take care of us because not a single second of the year ahead of us my friends will be beyond his vigilant and his watchful and providential care now how sad our condition would be this morning if this text that we've taken was not true for this is a land your lives are is a land your the church is a land that the lord your god cares for and his eyes are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. If that was not true, my friends, then there would be no hope for your future or mine. But if his eyes are always upon us, shouldn't our eyes be more consistently on him in the coming year? I'm glad to know that even when I lose sight of him, he hasn't lost sight of me. My beloved, may God help us to keep him in better focus in the year ahead of us. The hymn writer said it, like this another year is dawning dear father let it be in working or in waiting another year with thee another year of progress another year of praise another year of proving thy presence all the days another year of mercies of faithfulness and grace another year of gladness in the shining of thy face Another year of leaning upon thy loving breast, and another year of trusting, of quiet and happy rest. Another year of service, of witness for thy love. Another year of training for holier work above. Another year is dawning, dear Father, let it be on earth or else in heaven. Another year for thee. What a good prayer that is. And here's a promise to carry you through the next year. His eyes are upon you. You know, I grew up in West Texas and was taught early on in our music class in grammar school, the eyes of Texas are upon you. Wherever you go, Texas is watching. You know, Texas is just an an idea. (laughs) Don't tell the Texans I said that. (laughs) It's a good idea, but it's really just a, you know, it's it's an idea. It's a state, you know, but it's just, it's land that has been 
Somebody said, these are the borders and this is what we believe in this state. But you know, God is not just an idea. He's real. And He is watching you. The eyes of the Lord are upon you. At all times and in all places, He knows and cares. He's looking upon you, not in a sinister way, but with the tender care of a loving Heavenly Father to provide for your needs in the year ahead. That gives me a little hope to keep going. How about you? Yeah.